inside of the bulletin. This is um, um, Luke 22, 1 through 6. Luke 22, 1 through 6. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was, the number, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. The word of the Lord. Have you ever had an enemy? Probably from time to time, all of us have experienced uh, having someone who we had the sense was against us, uh, even if maybe words were never spoken. We have this other term that I've heard, uh, not an enemy, but a frenemy. Um, they're in our midst, and yet they are not necessarily for us. An enemy takes up a tremendous amount of energy. You're always looking over your shoulder, wondering what it is that they're doing. You always have to watch your step, for you fear that you're falling into a trap. Jesus had an enemy, or shall we call him a frenemy, and his name was Judas. I find it interesting that no one calls their child Judas. It wasn't Barrett uh, William Judas. Uh, now maybe your dog, not even your dog Judas. He is seen as the quintessential traitor. The frenemy, the one who was a friend of Jesus, indeed the one who betrayed him with a kiss. There's so many questions that we have to ask, that we have to answer when we think of a person like Judas. How could someone be so close to Jesus and yet so far to witness so intimately his love for them and yet to sell him out so callously? We love to despise the enemies of the Bible and perhaps Judas is the one that we love to hate the most. But I have found as I've been preparing this sermon that several times I've had to avert my eyes from Judas for the truth of the matter is I see a little bit of myself in him when I look closely. Was the sin of Judas forgivable or not? We'll get to that. The beauty of the gospel is simply this, that Jesus Christ came into the world to turn Judas's into Jesus's, to turn traitors into sons and daughters of God. And that opportunity exists to anyone who will call on his name. Well, let's dig a little bit into the mystery and psychology of Judas. There are many enemies of Jesus right now, not just, Ju not just Judas. It's been said that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. It's interesting, we see this multiple times in the, in the New Testament and the gospel stories where people who are enemies unite and become friends because of their united opposition to Jesus. We think mostly of Pilate and Herod. But you have a whole panoply of different opposition groups who hate each other. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, Pilate and the Romans, and the Herodians who are uniting, who are 
putting down their swords, so to speak, because they have one common enemy, Jesus Christ. And so we pick up the text and the story here in verse 2, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Why were they looking to get rid of Jesus? Because they were afraid of the people. How so? It was in John 11 that the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, these opposites coming together. And they said, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone believe in him, will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In other words, there's a status quo that's been developed here. And Jesus is upsetting it. And we have special privileges that have been given to us by the Romans. We don't have to worship the emperor. We can worship the one God. Never mind the fact that we're under the thumb of the Romans. The status quo is better than what could happen. We've got to get rid of this one. Jesus. He's causing problems. But the question is when? Notice uh, it, it said here that they, uh, well actually in a parallel passage in Matthew 26, the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled there in the meeting that was talked about in Luke and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him but not during the Passover feast or there may be a riot among the people. See, they are desperate. Two million people are massing in Jerusalem. Jesus has won the favor of the people. He's kicked them out of the temple. They're hanging on every word. And they feel the noose getting tighter. We've got to get rid of this guy. But if we do it in the wrong way, it might cause a riot. And then all of a sudden, everything that we've worked hard for, i.e. our position and power and influence, will be lost. They're desperate to get rid of Jesus, but in the right way. There's someone else who's desperate to get rid of Jesus. His name is Satan. Satan is growing desperate as well. You may ne have never thought about that. A lot of people think that Satan is interested in killing Jesus right now. But that's inaccurate. Satan does not want Jesus to die. Satan wants Jesus to be defeated and then die. Remember in Mark 8 when Jesus talks to the disciples and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and rebuked him. He said, Lord, may this never be so. May you never die like this for the people. And remember what Jesus said? Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God but the things of man. You see what's going on? Jesus has been broadcasting his intentions to everyone. The Son of Man is coming to save the world by dying. Satan is, is one of the sharpest tools in the shed. He knows that if Jesus Christ comes and dies an innocent death, a faultless death, his control over people will be gone. And so Satan doesn't simply want Jesus to be arrested and die. He has to defeat him. He tried to defeat him in the desert, remember? Getting him to break. Getting him to be disobedient to the Father. Getting him to lose faith. He has to keep him alive until he breaks him. 
And so he's actually at odds with the Pharisees who want to kill him. No, he's looking for something else. But amidst their desperation, amidst the plans that they're hatching right now, there's God's plan. And God's plan has been in effect since the beginning of time. That the Son of God is to die to save the world. Acts 2 put it this way, Men of Israel, Paul, uh, Peter speaking, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to God by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did. And it was God's set purpose and foreknowledge by which he gave him to you. And with the help of wicked men, you put to death by nailing him on the cross. Indeed, Jesus has gone so far as to call the time of his crucifixion the hour. He's been referring to the hour since the beginning of John. Jesus would go throughout doing his ministry. But as in John 7, for instance, they could not arrest him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. But you see, his hour has, not, has now come. It's Thursday. It's the time before when Jesus is going to be crucified. Remember Jesus praying in John 17, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, the hour for my departure has come. Despite the desperate maneuverings of the Sadducees and Pharisees, despite the plans of Satan, God's plan rolls on. The only conclusion we can draw is this. That God is in charge. See, Satan at the end of the day is God's devil. He can do nothing without God giving him control to do so. And so there are only certain things that he can do. He must outmaneuver. He must play better chess than the chess master. There's desperation that comes when you find yourself Working against God, isn't there? I had a friend once. I'm not sure if he ever was a friend in the end. And he knew the scriptures as well as anyone. He knew God's plan. But there were things that he wanted and so he went and he took them. And there's always consequences, isn't there? He tried to escape the consequences for his plans. Trying, but the jaws continue to get closer and closer and closer. The noose tighter and tighter. My associate, as I will call him right now, is in jail currently awaiting trial. And I cannot help but think that there is desperation in his heart as he feels the noose closing around him. What is the source of stress in our life? Life is difficult enough when we're following God's plans, isn't it? But I wonder if sometimes the stress and the desperation that we experience in our life is because we are trying to maneuver our lives around the plans of God. We're saying to God, I want to live my life my way and run my business my way and make my decisions my way. Whether it's overt or covert, we're rebelling against God 
deciding to walk our own path, irregardless of what he tells us. And there's a sense of desperation in our hearts. Much like these Pharisees, and much like Satan, we cannot throw off the plans of God. They will be accomplished. And so the solution is simple. To put down our weapons, to bend our knee, to acknowledge His place as King, and to trust His plan, irregardless of where you find yourself. And then wait and see. Well, none of these people are planning on doing that, are they? So I talked about Satan's plan. His plan is to keep him from dying. But he has an idea. He was not able to stop him in the desert. But what about using this fear of pain? This fear of death? Satan has a perfect pincher attack. See, the people are falling on every word. And so he's going to use the people to protect him from being killed. See, Satan thinks through his own mindset, right? They'll protect him from the cross, but I have to push him to the cross. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane when I will bring all of my weight. Indeed, Jesus called it the hour of darkness when he will break and then he will die. So Satan needs a spark to light the fire and his name is Judas. Judas Iscariot, to be precise. Iscariot comes from the word Kerioth, which means the town of Kerioth, which is in the south of Judea. All the other disciples are up from Gal the Galilean area. And so Judas is an outsider. Nobody knows anything about him. He sort of just came into the scene, so to speak. We don't know a whole lot about Judas aside from the fact that he is the one who betrayed him. It's what they say along in the scriptures all the time. Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. But we do know that he was chosen as a disciple. That means he must have appeared faithful. He must have played the part. There's no way Jesus would include somebody who would be an a living example of everything that he was talking against, right? That means when Jesus gave power to the disciples to go and perform miracles, that Judas was able to do it as well. On the face of it, Judas was a model disciple on the poor. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And a keep, as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, the other disciples might have been idiots, but they were committed to Jesus. Judas appears to be no idiot who is committed to Judas. And Jesus knew from the beginning. John 6, 64, it says, For Je Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Can you imagine that three years in the inner circle sharing your heart and your life washing the feet caring for these people calling them your friends knowing 
every minute, every moment that this man in front of me who claimed to love me was going to betray me. There are two mysteries that I have in my mind regarding Jesus. Number one, why did Jesus take a traitor into his midst? He knew he was going to do this. Why would he do that? The only answer I could come up with is because he wanted to illustrate how someone can be so close to Jesus and yet be so far away. The second and maybe greater mystery is why did Judas betray him? I mean, imagine three years of being in the company of God himself. Of seeing his compassion and his loves, of a love, of hearing his words that were like life. Of watching the power come out of his hands. And yet when we see the time came for his betrayal, it could not have been more cold and calculating. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray him. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Why did Jesus go to the chief priests then? Ironically, it's because Judas was the only one listening to what Jesus said. Jesus said, I'm going to go and betray, be betrayed and die. And you're all, in fact, going to experience persecution. It's not what Judas signed up for. Judas signed up for the kingdom. Jesus was going to be the king and he was going to be one of the twelve on the thrones. Judas is saying, I've spent three years of my life for this. I've got to get something out of this. Something for my efforts. And so he went to the priests and they negotiated a price. 30 pieces of silver. It's the price of a slave, by the way. Exodus 21, 32. 30 pieces of silver. In current inflationary terms back then, it would have been the equivalent of about four months' wages. How much was Jesus worth to Judas in the end? About four months of work. This may have been the most heinous sin in the world. In fact, I think it only rivals one other heinous sin. The sin of Adam. You scratch your head going, how can Judas and Adam's sin have been the same? Well, it's simple. They both walked with God. They both were in his presence. And yet they rebelled against him. Think about it. What's something worth? They say an engagement ring, you know, you save two to three months salary if anybody can do that anymore. Or a house if you take a mortgage, you know, twice your annual salary is what they say is the max for a mortgage. Well, if it's your wife or it's your kids who are sick, you'll give anything in order to try to save them. But what about the Son of God? What about the one who came to save sinners. Judas handed him over for four months wages. The reality is Judas didn't sell God for four months wages. He sold himself. Didn't he? See Judas was looking for the wrong thing. For power and comfort and prestige. And the Savior was right in front of him. 
who could give him eternal life, who could reconcile his heart to God, but he didn't want that. You could be so close and yet be so far. You could go to Redeemer. You could serve in the children's ministry. You could be an elder. Heck, you could even be the pastor. That's pretty close, isn't it? And you could also say in your heart, the promises aren't for me. I don't need that salvation. See, to Judas, he was a means. To the disciples, he was the end. And so who do you want? It doesn't really matter how far away or how near you are, does it? You'll get what you want in the end. Well, Judas' sin, you know, it was his most heinous. I'm going to wrap up with this thought. But it wasn't his worst. You may say to me, how is that possible, Carlos? How could this not be his worst sin? Judas had remorse, didn't he, at the end? I've betrayed innocent blood. He went to the priest. What's that to us? We don't care. And so he went away, threw the money into the temple, and then he hung himself. But you know, the truth of the matter is, there were many traitors that night, weren't there? What about Peter? I never knew the man. Calling down curses on himself. I have nothing to do with him. The other disciples who turned and ran. Maybe their betrayal wasn't as bad. But wasn't Judas's betrayal forgivable? As much so as Peter's, as much so as the disciples. We're traitors as well, aren't we? What's our sin? Rebellion against God. He made us. But much like Judas and Peter, I don't want to serve the king. I want to be the king. My comfort, my safety. Who hasn't sold out God for a lot less than four months' wages? I know I have. I've sold him out for a candy bar, if I'm honest. See, how Judas responded was the ultimate sin. His remorse didn't lead him to God. He wanted to be right, but not with God. And so he went and killed himself. While Peter, who betrayed God, wept bitterly. But in Peter's heart, somewhere was hope that Christ could cleanse me, forgive me, restore me, even me. And so when Peter saw Jesus on that sandy beach and recognized him, he was the first to dive into the water to start swimming. See, the point I'm trying to make is simply this. Who did Jesus come to save us from? He came to save us from ourselves. He came to save Judas from Judas. He came to save me from me. The problem is not Satan. Satan's just like a bigger version of us. We're just like him. It's only Jesus who can fix me. Jesus came to fix traitors just like Judas. He came to make Judas's like Jesus's.
to turn traitors into sons. No, the worst sin that Judas did was the unforgivable sin. To blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. To say to God, you cannot save me. You will not save me. I'm okay with me the way I am. See, the question ultimately, we're all around that table, is not, is it I, Lord, who am going to betray you? But rather, it's, can you save me? Can you forgive me? And the answer that Jesus unequivocally gives on the cross is yes. He came to save us from ourselves. He came to take traitors and make them become sons. I remember as a new Christian reading a little book. It was called My Heart, Christ's Home. little pamphlet. Anybody remember that? It's a great book. When you, uh, and it's a story of a guy who invited Jesus into his heart. And he pictured his heart as a bunch of different rooms. And Jesus came in and he started cleaning it out. In other words, the place was a mess already. But he invited him into his heart and he started cleaning. Jesus was cleaning. And then one day Jesus gets to a room and he goes and tries to go inside of it and it's locked. Jesus said, I want to go into that room. Oh, you don't want to go into that. There's, no, there's nothing there. No, I want to go into that room. Well, you can't. And Jesus said, well, I'm going outside of this house until you let me in that room. Because I want all of you. I came to fix all of you. And I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you've let Jesus into your house and there's a closet that you've got padlocked and doors and there's no way you're letting him in. I don't know if Jesus isn't even near your house. But there's a big difference between forgiveness and forgiven. So are you forgiven? You and I must be willing to recognize that I am Judas. Save for his grace. But we also must be willing to recognize that his grace is greater than my sin. His good is greater than my evil. His love is greater than my hate. And his life is greater than my death. What kind of God, by the way, would take a Judas and make him a son? What kind of grace is that? That no sin is so great. And no rebellion is too far. So what are you holding on to? Open your heart. Traitor and all. God, I need you to fix me. And the beauty is God comes. And when he comes, he never leaves. Despite Satan's plans, other people turned on Jesus, didn't they? Jesus didn't crack in Gethsemane. It was the Passover feast and that was the time when God was going to give up his son. And he surely died six hours one Friday. Thank goodness it's his grace that cannot be stopped. God's love is greater than our rebellion. And his reconciliation is greater than my traitorous heart. Jesus came into the world 
to take a Judas and make him a son. So run to him. Open your heart. Receive his love. And rest in the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, your love is deeper than the greatest sin. It's higher than the widest chasm, Lord. Your love prevails. Lord, help us learn the lesson that you can be so close and yet be so far. You came into the world to save people like Judas. So let us run to you and cling to nothing less. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.